following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. So as we've seen, uh, the book of Peter is clearly writing to uh, Christians who are experiencing suffering. They're being persecuted, as we know the early church was, and really the church throughout the ages has been persecuted. People who have followed Christ have often followed Christ at, at the cost of their life, or at the cost of um, uh, many uh, hardships. Um, and, and what I think is really fascinating, when he starts off the book, he talks about, in the midst of the suffering, what you need more than anything is faith. And he said this faith gets tested for its genuineness, but that this faith is actually more precious than gold. Now, when he says more precious than gold, he's not thinking like a gold little necklace, you know, that like you can adorn yourself, you can decorate yourself with faith, uh, like you would a little necklace or a collar or a bracelet or a gold ring. That's not what he means. He means more precious than all the mountains of gold you can imagine, right? All the wealth, all the gold of the world. He says your faith is more precious than um, piles of gold. Um, we think, and uh, the, the way they're thinking of the world, we think and believe that wealth will uh, protect us and give us what we want. Now, be honest, how many of you wish you had maybe not a huge mountain of gold, but at least a small mountain of gold? Anybody? Right? And what do you hope a little mountain of gold will do for you? Well, it'll give you what you want, Right? You can go buy anything you want. You could upgrade your house, your car, your phone, your whatever, right? Uh, it will keep you safe, right? It will keep you protected. Uh, that's why people pile away stocks of money, right? Because we think it's going to take care of us. Uh, but Peter says, actually, that's not true. What is far more valuable in protecting you and keeping you safe and giving you what you need in life what you really need is not gold, mountains of it. What you really need is faith. Why? Well, because, as it turns out, gold cannot keep you safe. Gold can't really protect you. Um, but God can. God can protect you. And the way we tap into God's power to protect us and to take care of is how? Well, by faith. By faith. Right? But the reality is that, uh, that this faith comes with testing, right? And, and he starts off the book talking about this testing of faith. Uh, and he ends the book really in the same place, talking about our faith being tested through suffering, right? And so these same words come back to us at the end of the book, and he's tracked all the way through, that in order to, to pass the test, in order to access the help and protection that God has for us, we need a strong Faith that's immovable, that's adequate, that doesn't get shaken, even when it's putting, put to the test of suffering. And one of the dangers of any test, right, is that uh, you can fail a test. I speak from personal experience, right? I've had several tests, you know, where I had no idea what they were asking, and I circled all the little dots, and I failed, right? You can fail a test. And Peter doesn't want us to fail when our, when our faith is tested, because this is, this is everything, right? More valuable than gold. 
So how can we make sure our faith passes the test, right? How can we make sure we have this, this immovable, unshakable faith that Peter wants us to possess, that will protect us, that will uh, make sure we have what we need, even in the midst of hardship and suffering? Um, well, first, uh, let's look. Peter talks about faith, and the first thing he tells us is, is the essential attitude of faith. Okay, this attitude or this, this uh, condition, really, of the heart that we need in order to have strong faith. And he's, he really starts, and the reason I, I um, started with verse 5, we're going to look just at the last phrase in verse 5, where he says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And chapter, verse 6 down, is really explaining and unpacking that phrase. And that phrase is actually a quote from Proverbs chapter 3, uh, where it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your cares on him, because he cares for you. Okay, so this is a commentary, a little explanation of this phrase, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Uh, Are you proud or are you humble? (laughs) Like if I say, are you humble, and you raise your hand, like are you being proud of being humble? (laughs) I don't know. Um, Are you proud or are you humble? Well, what is humility? And more importantly, what really does humility have to do with faith? A lot of times we don't really think of humility as being uh, necessary for faith. But I I hope to show you why humility is an essential attitude of the heart. And without it, you cannot have faith at all. Right? And the measure of your faith will be directly connected to the measure of your humility. Right? So he says says here, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Right? So uh, we're humbling ourselves under God's mighty hand. What is God's mighty hand? Well... It's a picture or image of God's power to do what he wants, right? Uh, when really strong guys with big muscles want to show off their muscles, they do this, right? Right? Show your muscles. See my muscle? No, you can't see it. It's invisible. I don't have big muscles. But if I did, right, that's what I... Right? The mighty hand of God, it means our ability or our power to accomplish things, to do things. And God's mighty hand is his power, his unlimited, unending power to work, to do what he wants, to accomplish things. Well, what does God want to do? What is he able to do? Well, in Scripture, his mighty hand usually gets used in reference to two things. One is his ability to create and destroy, and specifically in the context of judgment. So, right, so, to come, so this could mean humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. It means put yourself under God's power, knowing that he's going to judge you. It could mean that. Uh, but the other, probably more likely picture here is that God's power is also the power to save, the power to rescue. And we see this uh, used of, of uh, God when he brought the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. Uh, he tells them that he's going to deliver them by his mighty, mighty arm, by his outstretched arm, by his hand. Right? And so it's a picture of God's ability, his power to rescue, to save, to protect Right? Uh, to do his will in helping us. And so we're supposed to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand, under his power, his ability to rescue us, to help us, and to save us. Right? Um, 
so uh, it, it really does mean, in, in a sense, entrusting or putting yourself in his care. And we looked at this two weeks ago. I don't know if you remember, but First Peter 4.19, we looked at this amazing verse where it says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator. We talked about the importance of, uh, in the midst of suffering, entrusting our lives into God's care. Right? And that's really, that's really a definition of humility. Humility is ultimately... Uh, putting ourselves, entrusting ourselves into God's care. Um, then you think, well, I don't, I don't think that's true. That doesn't make sense. I don't think of humility. I thought humility was supposed to be like thinking you're a worm, right? What does that have to do with trusting yourself in God's care? Well, uh, certainly the word does mean to be low, to be lowly, to put yourself under or below something. But what's important to see here is that what we're putting self under is God's ability to protect and take care of us, Right? Uh, now, if you don't believe that, uh, notice what he says in verse 7. And it's important to see that in verse 7, it's very much a continuation of thought. This is not a new or random idea. In the Greek, in fact, the word that's used here very much connects what he says in verse 7 with this idea of humility. So humbling yourself under the mighty hand of God, you can almost translate it with the word by. By means of what? Verse 7. Uh, by means of casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Right? So Peter's very much connecting these two ideas of humbling ourselves and casting our cares upon God because he cares for you. Right? Um, uh, humility is, is essentially uh, putting our burdens, our cares... Uh, in God's hand. They are not random disconnected ideas, but they're really one and the same thing. Right? Humbling ourselves is, is dumping, you could really use the word here, dumping all of our problems on God. Right? Doesn't this sound like a good deal? Right? This sounds like a great deal, right? Like this is not that hard. Uh, you, have, you have problems. Okay? Does anybody here have problems? Is anybody here worried about anything? anxious about anything, right? Uh, there's lots in life to be worried about. Uh, will people like me? Will they approve of me? Especially if we raise support and we want to make sure our donors approve of us, right? Do they approve? Do they think I'm doing the right things? Will they support me, right? Um, do we have uh, what we need to make it? Do we have enough money? Do we have enough resources? Do we have enough time, right? Are we going to succeed? Are we going to do what well? we worry about those things? Um, am I going to be okay? Am I going to be safe uh, in, in sickness and in problems, especially in suffering? Am I going to be okay? Um, will I have enough that I need uh, to to be successful, to uh, to get through life, to make it to the end? Right? Those are the problems of life, and many more. Right? And here's the problem of pride. This is why we have to humble ourselves. The problem of pride is this. Pride is doing just the opposite of entrusting ourselves into God's care. Okay? Pride is not uh, dumping our problems on God. Pride instead is saying, uh, I don't need God because I've got this. Right? I've, I've got this under control. Um, yes, I am worried about it, but I'm pretty convinced that no one knows better what I need or how to take care of me than me. Right? That's pride. 
I know what I I know what I need. I know the answer, and I'm kind of worried about it, but I'm all I've got. And so I have to trust in myself to work it out. Now, of course, uh, this sounds horrible, and it's like, well, you know, who would do that, right? Who would do that? Right? Certainly not us, certainly. But here's the truth, right? When it comes down to it, and, and you're really in a moment of crisis, you really are suffering, life is really hard, you are being overwhelmed by anxieties, um, is it easy to cast your cares on him because he cares for you? Or is it much easier to hold on to those things and worry about it and, and believe that God can't possibly know what's best for me? I mean, what if God asked me to do something that's like way out there? Like he does stupid things like that, you know? And uh, I'm not sure... He really knows what he's doing. I'm not sure he's really that smart. I'm not sure he really knows what's best for me. Right? Now, we know that's not true, but down in our heart, isn't that what we do? Right? Isn't that what we, the, the conversation we have with ourselves? Right? Um, and see, pride is holding on to my own wisdom and this conviction that I'm the only one who really knows what I need. I'm the only one who can figure this out. And it would be foolish to trust God because he can't possibly know what I need as well as I do. And you see, when we do that, we are exalting ourselves into the place of God. We're saying, God, I don't need you because I'm, I'm divine enough. Right? I'm infinitely wise enough that I know better than you. That's pride. Right? And that's exactly the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden. God gave them everything they needed to be safe and to be cared for, and to thrive, and to have joy. All they had to do is humble themselves and put their life in God's care. But instead, with the help of the serpent who came along and uh, told them a bunch of lies and stories, convinced them that God couldn't possibly know what was best for them. Look at you, God, he's keeping you from the best tree in the whole garden. See, God's not looking out for you. God's not taking care of you. You need to take charge of you. Right? You need to take control of your life. Be your own boss. Right? Don't let God be telling you what to do. Uh, and, and in pride, Adam and Eve rejected God's plan to decide that their way was better. They knew better than God. Right? And that has been the number one sin of humanity ever since. Right? We put ourselves in God's place. We are convinced we know better than God does. And there's no way in the world we're going to entrust ourselves into his care. Right? Because in pride, we're going to do it. I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to do it my way. Right? So humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God is admitting that we don't know what's best. Admitting that we can't solve our own problems. Admitting that we can't work it out. And our only hope is to dump our anxieties and, and worries and cares upon him because he cares, right? We cannot fix our own problems. In fact, humility is this. Humility is coming to the point where we realize that the harder I try to fix things, the d deeper I dig myself into a hole. Okay? The more I try to fix it, the more I try to work it out, the more I just dig myself into a deep hole. Many years ago, a long, long time ago, when I worked at this Bible camp, uh, the camp had its own water system. 
And one day, uh, the, it was a big leak in one of our main water pipes. And it was in the middle of winter, so the ground had been frozen. So it took us a while for the water to get through all the frost to surface. But we finally found it, and when we did, it was kind of a mess because the water had been just pouring out for, for days. And so my friend, but my boss, actually the director of the camp, he uh, got on the tractor and he's digging out the dirt and trying to get to the broken pipe. But um, it, the ground was so muddy that this tractor just started to sink in the mud. Now, a wise person would have said, I'm in trouble, I need help. But he was like, no, I got this, right? I got a tractor. I mean, this thing's like got tracks and it's big and it's got power, right? And so he just kept working that tractor trying to get out. But the more he worked, the more he tried. Guess what? The more that thing sunk. And I'm telling you, he sunk that tractor up to the radiator, which is really deep. That's really deep. That's really bad. Right? It's really bad. And that's kind of how it is. When we try to fix our own messes, we just dig ourselves deeper in. And it gets worse and worse. And the pride person says, I got this. <laughs> Life's a disaster. But I got this. Right? The humble person says, no. I got I to gotta put... I need God's help. Right? And he calls out for God's help. Uh, this, is the, uh, this attitude of the heart is essential for faith. Right? You cannot have faith until you come to a place of humility. Of admitting that we can't do it. We don't have the answers. Um, and my only hope is to cast my cares upon God and let him help me and take care of me. All right, so that's the essential attitude. So that's the beginning of faith, is, is this kind of humility, this kind of dependence on God that we need him. Uh, but what exactly is faith? Okay, and it's important to unpack what faith really is, and Peter helps us with some great insights here on what faith is, right? So we need to have this faith to overcome, to stand firm. We want this faith to be established. But what is it? Um, and oftentimes, especially in, uh, in, in our modern world, um, even in the secular world, there's this idea of the power of faith, if you only believe. And a lot of, a lot of great Disney movies, just this is the theme of the movie. You just got to believe. And belief in itself is all you need, right? Uh, and so sometimes Christians have the same attitude that I just have enough faith. I can move mountains. I just got to get faith. I don't know what it is, but I got to have it, right? Well, faith is not actually... The truth is, faith has zero power in itself. I don't care how much faith you have. Uh, faith can't do anything. Faith can't move a flea, much less a mountain, by itself, right? Uh, because faith needs, uh, faith, faith is not just confidence. Faith is not just certainty. It's not just confidence, right? Because faith ultimately needs an object. And what that means is you have to have faith in something. Now, of course, you can have faith in yourself, and that's what it kind of comes down to. A lot of people want to have a lot of faith. What they really have faith is their own self. Uh, that's pride, right? That's not humility. Um, but faith has to have an object. Uh, that's the thing that you're trusting in. And then faith also has to have content or meaning. In other words, we have to believe something about that object that makes it worthy of our trust, right? That makes it something that we... We should trust in, that we can have confidence in. Okay, so I want to talk about these two things, the object of our faith and the content of our faith. But of course, the object of our faith is what? Well, God, right? It should be. God is 
the one with the mighty hand. He's the strong one, right? So he is the object of our faith. And the content are the things about him that make him worthy of our trust, right? How do we know we can trust him? That's the content. Let me, let me give you an illustration. And we have a, a picture and a video. Um, we'll do the picture first. Okay, this is a picture of me doing something really stupid. Uh, I'm climbing up this tree, and you see there's a tree there, and I'm the guy in the red shirt on top of the ladder about to go up that tree to that wooden platform 900 feet off the ground. Well, it felt like that when I got up there anyway. right? And the goal of this whole exercise, so the way this happened, this last summer I was speaking at a youth camp, at a kid's camp where I used to work, and um, I was pastor for these high school kids, and I walked over one day while they were doing these activities to just take some pictures of them, and they said, oh, Pastor Tim, you should do this. It's like, no, I shouldn't. Oh, yeah, you should, right? So they convinced me I needed to do this. So I put on the gear, and I climb up the ladder. And the goal is to get up on top of this wooden platform. And then you can't see it, but over there by that other tree, there's a, a bar, a, like a trapeze bar. And the goal was to jump and catch this bar, which was also 900 feet away, right? So, yeah, you can play the video now while I explain how this works. So, uh, so I did this. Um, I did this, this event. So, so in this, so thankfully, I, I'm, I've got this harness and this rope on, right? And so the, the, the goal is if I miss the bar, which I did, um, the, the rope catches you, right? So the object of my faith here is this rope, right? That's what I'm trusting in. I'm not trusting in me because I was pretty sure there was no way I was going to make it, right? Um, and I'm standing up on that wooden platform, and I'm thinking, this is stupid. Uh, but if I'm going to do this, I can do this because I'm trusting in, in that rope. But not only that, but I have to trust some things about the rope. First, that this rope can hold my full, you know, a lot of weight. I'm telling you how much. Uh, but it can hold all that weight. And not only that, but the guy on the other end, there's a guy on the other end actually holding the rope. Uh, that he knows what he's doing. And that he has the right gear and the right... Uh, Things that when I jump and miss, he can catch me, right? Those are the things of the content of the face. So you can see up there, I'm, I'm hesitating. He jumps, he misses. Oh, sad. Good try. Uh, right? But the rope caught me, right? So, so uh, this is how faith works, right? Faith has an object, it's God. But there's some things we need to know about God that make faith work, right? So what is the content of our faith? What do we need to know about God? Uh, that that uh, helps us stand firm. And in the context here, he says, uh, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. This is a lovely thought. Uh, Satan is out there, the devil's out there, and he's pro- pro- prowling around like a, like a lion. And he wants to eat you. That doesn't mean he wants to literally eat you. What he really wants to do is he wants to destroy your faith. Right? He doesn't really care about anything else. His, his goal is to wreck your faith. Right? And so he says, stand firm. Resist him. Stand firm in your faith. Right? So, um, so we're going to look at three things that, that's the conduct. Three things we need to believe about God, but also the faith killers that Satan is using to unravel these. Right? And the first faith killer is simply that God can't help you. Right? Like God may have created the world... But he actually can't help you. (laughs) Sounds silly, sounds ridiculous, but the truth is, this is what Satan whispers in our ear. Oh, well, you know, maybe maybe God can help some people, but your problem is way too big. 
Your, your problem is way too serious. There's no way God can help you. Right? And that's the lie that Satan uh, whispers in our ears. So the faith builder, the way we need to overcome that is believing that with all of our hearts that God is mighty. That God is able. Right? That God has the power to do anything. Now, again, I know that we know this. Like, if you hear it say, is God omniscient? That's the word for all-powerful. Yeah, sure, God's omniscient, right? But it's amazing how we can believe that here, but when Satan whispers that, you know, we have this problem, and Satan whispers and says, you know, God couldn't possibly help you with that, we go, oh, I know. What am I going to do, right? And, and we lose faith, right? So, uh, so we need to... We need to stand firm with this conviction that God is mighty, right? Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Let me just read some scriptures to uh, enforce in our minds the, the power of God. Ephesians 3.20 says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Okay? God can do above and beyond anything that we can even think or imagine or ask for. Okay, he, his, his ability, his power is so great, there's nothing so big we couldn't ask God for help with that's beyond his, his capacity. Right? God will never say, oh, wow, you do have a big problem. I don't know what to do. <laughs> God will never say that. Right? Um, he is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask. All we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. Right? Uh, Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Uh, ultimately, the power of God is proven in the cross and the resurrection. Uh, not to mention creating the universe. You know, that was good too. Uh, but ultimately, the, the, the power of God for us is evident in the cross, right? Uh, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. 1 Corinthians 1.18 For the word of the cross is folly. It's foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Right? That God would send His Son, that Jesus would die for us on the cross, that He would take our sin that he would conquer death and give us life. That is the power of God toward us. Ephesians 1.18. Um, you know, the problem is that we just don't see it. And so Paul prays in Ephesians 1.18, I'm praying that you would have the eyes of your hearts enlightened, your spiritual eyes opened, so you could see and know, verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? The immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Okay, this is a power that's so great we can't measure it. We can't even imagine it. Right? And not only that, but this power is, is, a, is, is according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. That's power. Right? Uh, and here's the thing. If you, if you had possession in your hands of all the gold in the world, all of it was in your power and in your hands, right? And, and you, you wrote in your will, okay, here's the thing. When I die, I'm going to give all of my gold to whoever can raise me from the dead. Is that going to work? Okay, 
It's because the gold's not enough. Let's say you had all the gold and you throw in all the diamonds of the world with it. Now, you know, whoever you know, can have this money if they raise me from the dead, is that going to be enough? No, right? It's not enough. Right? That power doesn't work. The power of God it will raise you from the dead. Uh, are you going to be okay? You will get sick. Eventually, you'll get old like me and older. <laughs> Eventually, your body's going to wear out, and someday you're going to die. Are you going to be okay? By the power of God, yes. Because we are guaranteed resurrection, proven because Jesus already, God already raised Jesus from the dead. And the power that raised him from the dead is at work in you and in me. God is powerful, right? We are okay because there's nothing that God can't do, including overcoming death, overcoming the grave, overcoming sin and its curse, right? So we can, we can say with Paul in 2 Corinthians 10, for the weapons of our, war, the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds, right? That's the power that God has toward us, right? And, and we need to daily remind ourselves and build our, our, our faith up in this truth that God is able. He has incredible power, and that power is, uh, is, is, is guarding us. It's protecting us. It is keeping us. It is providing for us. Okay, so the second thing, though, having power is one thing. But how do we know that this God wants to use his power to help us? Right? What if God's just selfish? What if God's, yeah, he's powerful, but he just wants to squash us like a bug? Right? That's how he's going to use his power toward us. Right? Uh, that's, that's the faith killer. Uh, the faith killer is that, well, sure, God's powerful, but he doesn't want to help me. He doesn't care about me. Right? That's faith killer number two, that Satan will whisper in our ear. Right? Well, sure, God's powerful, he's mighty, but he doesn't care about you, right? He doesn't love you. Um, so the second thing we have to know about God is, is that God cares. God cares, right? Uh, verse 7, we cast all our anxieties on him because he cares for you. Because he cares for you. Um, does God really use his power? Uh, does he really use all this power and might he's got to help us? Absolutely. Absolutely. All the way back again, back in Exodus, when, uh, when, when Moses was leading the people out of slavery in Egypt, and the people were being stubborn and they were making idols, and God's like, I'm not going with these people because they're, they're sinful and I'll end up destroying them. And Moses pleads with God, please do not leave us. You have to go with us or we're in huge trouble, right? And God says, no, I'm not going with you because I'll destroy them all. And, and Moses says, no, you have to go. And so finally God relents and he says, okay, I will go with you. And as a proof of that, as a, as a sign that God's going to go with them, Moses asks for a very bold thing. He says, okay, God, if that's true, then in, in Exodus 33, 18, he says, uh, please show me your glory. And that's a pretty big request, right? And God says, okay, I will do that. And so he says, you come up on the mountain, and he tells him to go in this kind of crack in the rock, and he says, you can't actually see my glory face to face, because that will kill you, but I'll pass by, and you'll get a glimpse of 
the backside of my glory. Not my face, right? And so God does that. And uh, he passes by Moses. But what's interesting is, when he reveals his glory to Moses, his eyes are covered, he can't see anything. And uh, what, what Moses gets is this. Moses gets a word, a description of the character of God. Right? And so the cool thing is, do you want to see God's glory? Okay, I'll give it. Nobody raise their hand. Do you guys want to see God's glory? Okay, I'm going to show you right now. I'm going to give you exactly what Moses got. Exactly what Moses got. Right? This is God's glory. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, Yahweh, the Lord, Yahweh, a merciful and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's the glory of God. That is the glory of his character and nature. He is a God of abounding and steadfast love and faithfulness. In other words, God is bubbling over with a heart that cares about you in ways you can't even imagine or, or uh, beyond really our grasp, right? Um, and, and this heart of God towards us, right? Uh, and the proof of God's care is seen, the proof of God's power is seen in the cross, but even more, the proof of God's care is, and love is seen in the cross, Right? Romans 5.8 But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Okay? Uh, that, that is the proof of God's love. And we hated him. When we were his enemies, uh, he, he, he died for us. Okay? How can we ever doubt that he cares for us? Ephesians 2.4-5 says this, But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. Right? And again, right, the problem is we just need to have our eyes opened. You know, like Paul prayed, read it again, Ephesians 1.18, Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us in raising Christ Jesus from the dead. Right? Um, God cares. And again, we know this in our head, right? Like most of us would say, yeah, I know God loves me. But it's amazing the power of Satan's voice when he comes along and starts whispering. Look at all the trouble you're in. Look at how messed up. Look at how, look at how you are suffering. God is judging. God is punishing you. He doesn't care about you. He's punishing you and you deserve it. And you're like, yeah, I know. I know, I deserve it, right? God doesn't care about me. Uh, And we forget that uh, all of our punishment, all of our guilt has already been poured out on Jesus. There is is therefore now no condemnation. There is no punishment left. If you're suffering through hard things, it is not because God is punishing you. It's because he is testing you. He's not punishing you. Uh, he loves you and he cares for you. And he's watching over you. Right? So we can entrust our souls to a faithful creator, to a God who cares. Right? Third thing. Um, so, so God is able. 
First, first content of our faith. Second content of our faith is God cares. But then we come up with the third faith killer, right? The third faith killer that gets us every time. And it goes like this. Well, yeah, sure, God is powerful. Sure, God cares about some people. But he couldn't possibly care about me. Why? Because I am too sinful. I am too messed up. I'm too bad. Right? I don't deserve his kindness. And he couldn't possibly love me. I'm not one of those good people, right? I'm too wicked and full of sin. And boy, Satan really, this is Satan's best line, right? This is his favorite lie to use against us. Look at what a mess up you are. Look Look at how you fail all the time, right? Why would God love somebody like you? And oh, how we can just own those words, right? And it unravels our faith. Oh, yeah. That's right. Why would God love me? I'm so messed up. And to that, Peter says in verse 10, uh, it's all by grace. Right? After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, he himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Okay. The other thing you've got to know about God is that God is a God of, of grace, of all grace, of overwhelming grace, right? And the truth is, yes, it's right. We don't deserve his help. We do not deserve his kindness. We do not deserve his love. We do not merit in any way his favor, right? Um, but, but it's not based on anything we have done to deserve it. His love is not based on anything we do, any goodness that in us, but it's based on who He is. He is a gracious, loving God. That is who He is. So it says in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's not any works, no effort, nothing you have done on your part. It is a gift of God. Not a result of works. Not as a result of good deeds. Not as a result of having your life together or having it all worked out. Why? So that no one may boast. Come back to that thing of humility, right? Humility is saying, God, I am messed up. I am unworthy. Right? It is an undeserved gift. It is not something we earn by doing good. It's not something we merit through our goodness. It is a free gift. Um... And, and to tap into this grace, we need uh, to remember that um, we can never be good enough to deserve it, right? Or earn it through good, good works. But there's two things. Uh, and and so, so grace is a free gift. It's dependent fully on who God is, not anything that we do in ourselves, our character, our goodness. But interestingly enough, there are two requirements for grace. Did you know that? It's a free gift. But there are actually two things that are required of us in order to receive this gift. Now, it's not being a good person. It's not, it's not getting your life together. It's not being, uh, doing any kind of good works. But here's the two things. First one, we already read. right? We already looked at it. Verse 5. God opposes the proud, but he give, gives grace to who? The humble. He gives grace to the humble. Right? Uh, grace cannot come to those who don't think they need it. 
And Jesus says this to the Pharisees in Luke chapter 5. Uh, they're, they're blasting Jesus about why he's hanging out with bad people. And Jesus says to them, well, <clears throat> those who are well have no need of a, a doctor, but those who are sick need him. Uh, now, uh, the Pharisees needed a doctor. They just didn't think they needed one. Right? They thought they, their spiritual health was so good, they didn't need what Jesus had to offer. And so they cut themselves off from grace because they thought they were they didn't need it. Right? They didn't have the humility to admit they were sick. Right? Um, so we need to humble ourselves. Right? That's the first requirement. Second requirement, uh, we see uh, when, uh, uh, in verse 8. He says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, like the devil, prowls around like a lion seeking to devour someone. Resist him. Right? Stand up against him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of things are experienced by people all over the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of grace will establish you. Right? Uh, long sentence. But basically what he's saying there is, yes, our faith is going to, put to the, be put to the test. Uh, Satan is prowling around. He wants to destroy you. He is our great enemy. Uh, and he does, uh, he does want to destroy our faith. Right? Um, but he says, look, you have the power in you to resist him by doing what? By standing firm in your faith. And when we do that, the God of all grace will establish you. All right, so the second thing we need, requirement for, for, for accessing God's grace is to believe. Is to have faith. Is to stand firm, uh, first in the object of our faith, which is God. And then holding on to those three contents of our faith. Those three truths of faith. Right? God is able... Uh, God cares, and he's a God of all grace, right? Um, so it's kind of a vicious circle, right? Um, it, it kind of works like this. We stand firm in faith, uh, and, and God's grace comes, and he, he uses these words. He says, God will establish you. He uses four words that all basically mean the same thing. <coughs> he, <coughs> sorry. He will restore you, confirm you, <coughs> strengthen and establish you. What that means is he's going to set you rock solid in your faith. So you get tested for a little bit. And when you resist in faith, God, in his grace, pours out more faith. He establishes you. Right? So this is how it works. But the first condition of grace is humility. The first condition of grace is humility. Faith is an unshakable confidence of what God can do and wants to do for us. Suffering puts faith to the test. When things go bad, do we turn to ourselves to keep us safe? Or do we put our trust in God? Do we cast our cares on Him, knowing that in His power and in His kindness and in His grace, He will take care of us? Right? Okay, so, so two character attitudes. One, humility. The other is faith itself. Faith uh, is... Trusting in God, a confidence that God has, uh, will take care of us by his power, by his heart, his love, and by his grace. And, and in the end, uh, we, we, we have faith to the finish. And the finish is God's glory, right? 
after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. And that's where he started in in, in 1 Peter 1.3. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So he ends with these words. He says, uh, By Salvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you. Actually, five chapters. It's not that brief, but whatever. Uh, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. And stand firm. Uh, and there will be glory. Right? You may suffer for a little while. But then the God of all grace will uh, call you into his glory. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.